when Jesus asked Peter the question, Who do men say that I am? Several theories were circulating. Peter told him, The word on the street is that some say you are John the Baptist, others say that you are Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. And then, of course, Jesus asked Peter, But who do you say that I am? And this very question continued to echo through the halls of the early church. Once the Bible was complete, once all the full revelation was given, debates continued about the person of Jesus. Who is He really? In fact, for the first several hundred years, 400 years even, that question was being answered in a variety of ways and there remained confusion over what the Bible really teaches concerning the person of Christ. One early teaching was called docetism. Docetism taught that Jesus was God, but He only appeared to have a body, and He wasn't really incarnate. This error developed out of the dualistic Greek philosophy of the time, which believed that God could not be associated with matter because matter was evil and God was spirit, and therefore any idea that God came down to us could not be in an actual human frame. Those two are not congruent with each other, and so therefore they concluded that Jesus was not really a man. In fact, it is this early distortion of the person of Christ that we see John the Apostle coming against in 1 John. Notice in 1 John 1.1, he says, "...that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life." Now, scholars are in agreement that John was combating this early form of Gnosticism, which ended up becoming Docetism. There's all of this emphasis on, no, you don't understand. We heard him, we saw him, we touched him. So that was a heresy of the early church. Another one was called Arianism. Arius was an early church bishop who denied the divinity of Christ. So he taught that Jesus was just a man and he was not God. In fact, he was a creation of God. So your modern day uh, Arians are those who go door to door representing the Watchtower Society. We call them Jehovah's Witnesses. And they hold to Arius' false teaching. The Father and Son are not co-eternal. There was a time when the Son did not exist. The Son was the greatest creation of Jehovah and He was made and not begotten. And so Arius was deemed a heretic at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. In fact, you might be familiar with the Nicene Creed, especially if you grew up Roman Catholic. We recited it every week. The Creed says, We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, 
begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through Him all things were made, for us and for our salvation He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. So Bishop Arius had this teaching that Jesus was just a man and being in a position of influence, his false teaching spread. So they had this council and they wrote this creed to make it very clear what Christians believe about Jesus. So that's why there's this emphasis here on him being the, the very God. God from God. Another false teaching in the early church was called Apollinarianism. And this teaching said that Jesus had a human body, but did not have a human mind and soul, but a divine mind and soul. Thus Christ was not fully human. So this was kind of a middle ground between God and man. Another false teaching was Nestorianism, and he proposed, Nestorius proposed the view that Jesus existed as two persons, the man Jesus and the divine Son of God, rather than a unified person. So according to Nestorius, Christ essentially exists as two persons sharing one body. Sometimes he acts as deity, sometimes he acts as human. Another one that came much later, this was the 5th century, is called Eutychianism. I just like to say that. It sounds fun. Eutychianism. This is the view that Jesus was neither fully human nor fully divine. In fact, he was a hybrid of humanity and divinity. And out of those two came a new, different nature. So the way... In seminary, the way I would remember this was, if you have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, one side's peanut butter, the other side is jelly, and Eutychius smashed those two together and had it be a whole new thing called a sandwich. That's what he did with Jesus. So, it's this merging of the two to create this holy other thing, which actually would deny the true humanity of Christ. And I can't give you an exhaustive teaching on what he believed, but every one of these ends up with some kind of error on one side or the other. Now, why are these things important? These things all sound vaguely similar, don't they? I mean, come on, are we really splitting hairs here? I mean, isn't this just theological nitpicking? But it's like Charles Spurgeon once said, Discernment is not knowing what is true from what is false, but what is true from what is almost true. And while all of these sound similar, they end up denying what the Bible teaches about who Christ is. These things are important because if Jesus does not possess a true human nature, and if Jesus does not possess a true divine nature, 
He cannot represent both God and man, meaning he can't truly be your substitute and savior. So, these things are very important, and throughout the first five centuries, they were very busy making sure they understood clearly who it was that this person Jesus is. Was he God? Was he man? Was he a percentage of both? Was he more divine than human or more human than divine? And so you have church council after church council clarifying these matters, exposing the false teaching, hashing out the Scriptures and determining what the Scriptures reveal. And what you have is a biblical picture of Christ, which is that He was fully God and fully man. 100% God, 100% man, not a mixture of the two. Jesus of Nazareth and the divine Son of God. And if you try to make Him one or the other, you fall into something other than what God has revealed. Now, there are many passages in the Gospels that reveal the deity of Christ. That He is the incarnation of the invisible God. He has power over creation. He has power over demonic forces. He has power over sickness and disease. He has power over death. In fact, the Pharisees took issue with Jesus forgiving sin because they know the Scriptures. Only God can do that. It was unmistakable that the work that he was doing was done by the power of God and that his wisdom and explicit knowledge of the future was only understandable if he were divine. Add to this the Old Testament Scriptures that are originally attributed to God, the God of Israel, are applied to Jesus. There are legion of them. And he received the kind of worship and honor that are due to God alone. So, many in these early centuries of the church had trouble with this. The enemies of Christ did not seem to have trouble with the claims Jesus made. In fact, let me give you one example out of John chapter 10. Picking up in verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Modern vernacular, God and I are the same. The Jews picked up stones again to stone Him. What are they going to stone Him for? Because they know Old Testament law. You can't walk around saying God and I are the same. Jesus answered, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone Me? The Jews answered, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. So, Jesus' critics did not have a problem. Uh, they had a problem with what he was saying. They did not have a problem understanding the claim he was making. And Jesus never said, whoa, whoa, guys, you, you're taking this way too far. God? No, I'm not God. Never said that. In fact, after the resurrection, Jesus, uh, uh, Thomas says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. 
And you know what Jesus says? Settle down, Thomas. Whoa, you're, you're misinterpreting what I'm saying. No. He says, you believe because you have seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So Jesus is fully God and come down to us. But what has not been as clear to many is that he is also fully man. And lest we drift into some kind of heresy, we have to remember this vital biblical truth. And our text this afternoon in Luke 19, I think, gives us a very clear example of this. In Luke 19 and in the chapters to come, we will see that Jesus expresses himself through a range of human emotion that anyone would expect as coming from a human. And this will have not only theological significance, but it has profound importance in how you relate to God. Okay? So this is not just we get together and we have this kind of uh, intellectual interest in ancient writings. This is about your relationship to God and you understanding what God is like. So, we're going to get into that verse in a second. Let me give you some review. Last week, what we saw what has been called the triumphal entry. When Jesus rides a donkey into Jerusalem to the praise of the crowds and His disciples. And it is this event that begins the final section of Luke's Gospel and what all four Gospel writers um, focus on more than anything this final week of Jesus' life. It's been called Passion Week. It is when Jesus will be betrayed and arrested and condemned and executed. And it is that series of events which much of the Old Testament foretells, and it is where Jesus will become an atoning sacrifice to reconcile us to God. And the point I drove home last week was that these events were not simply happening to Jesus. Jesus is not presented as some kind of bystander or some kind of victim. He is portrayed as controlling that series of events and even participating in their fulfillment. The way that Jesus acquired the donkey, for example, and He entered the city, that was the plan of God. And Jesus, we saw last week, was directing those events. Now, I mentioned in the sermon last week that Jesus was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy because the Scripture says that Messiah was going to ride a donkey into Jerusalem. And someone said, well, you know, as far as fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, that one's pretty easy, I think. I mean, anyone could ride a donkey into Jerusalem and claim to be the Messiah. Yes, that is true. And maybe... What we saw last week with all of those supernatural circumstances surrounding that event was the proof that Jesus gave that this is not just some ordinary guy riding into Jerusalem, but He is the one who directed His disciples to the animals. He knew its location. He knew its condition. He knew what was necessary for its acquisition. 
And I think that was all given so that we recognize this is supernatural. This is not just some Yahoo riding a donkey into Jerusalem claiming to fulfill Old Testament Scripture. So Jesus gives the details about this animal. His disciples go and find it. It's just as He said. And the people lay down their cloaks before Him as Jesus rides into the city. John's Gospel tells us some were waving palm branches. They were crying out, Hosanna, praise to the King. It was a jovial scene of celebration and anticipation. But while the crowds were excited and the disciples were rejoicing, we see the response of this soon-to-be king in verse 41. And when, he, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. This is Jesus coming in when he gets a full vision of that glorious city of Jerusalem. He we are told, wept over it. Now, his reason for weeping is because of what that city represents. Jerusalem is representative of the nation. It is representative of the Jewish people. It is representative of those who have opposed him for the last three years. It represents that religious system that has no room for him as king. Their whole system of worship and sacrifice was allegedly all for him, this God, they claimed. They were outwardly committed to honor God, and yet when he came to them, they refused him. And so as he looks upon the city, a flood of emotion comes over him, and it says he wept. Now Luke uses the strongest term in the Greek language to describe this. It's a different word than we see in John 11 when Jesus is on his way to the tomb of Lazarus, and it's that verse you memorized long ago. You remember that one? Jesus wept. It's not the same word. That one could be translated, Jesus cried. But the word Luke uses here describes a deep sobbing. The Greek dictionary says, to weep or wail with emphasis upon the noise accompanying the weeping. Very strong word. The same word describing when Peter denied Jesus for the third time and he went out and wept. It's the same word for the widow in Nain whose son had died and they were carrying him out of the city. And Jesus is approaching Jerusalem and he's filled with this overwhelming grief and this deep sorrow manifests itself in audible sobs. We might say today, he was bawling.
Now, I made the argument last week that Jesus was fully aware of everything that was happening. I tried to drive home the point He was in control of the details of what was happening. How He directed the disciples. Other ways that demonstrate foreknowledge. But if Jesus knows what's going to happen, if Jesus knows all of these things pertaining to the future, why is He so upset here? Why is Jesus expressing Himself with this most profound emotion? Well, maybe He doesn't know what's going on. Maybe He really doesn't. Well, let's just remind you that He does. And I mean all of the details. John chapter 6, we discover Jesus knew all about Judas way before He betrayed Him. John 6.70, Jesus answered the disciples, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Or, on the night of his betrayal, he revealed to the disciples who would betray him. John 13.26, Jesus answered, It is He to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when He had dipped the morsel, He gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after He had taken the morsel, Satan entered into Him. Jesus said to Him, What you are going to do, do quickly. What you're going to do? What are you talking about, Jesus? Well, Jesus knows what Judas is going to do. Jesus has full knowledge of what is taking place. Jesus knew that Peter would deny him. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Jesus knew that the disciples would all abandon him. Mark 14.27 Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus knew He came to Jerusalem to die and at whose hands He would die. Matthew 16.21 From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Jesus is not in the dark about these events. Jesus is walking into this with eyes wide open. And Jesus knows that the Jews have to reject Him because He knows the plan of His Father is to bring salvation to the world. And you can't bring salvation to the world unless you have a suffering Messiah. And the Jews rejecting that Messiah. So, what are we to make of Jesus being so upset that He weeps when He sees the city where He's going to perish? He knew this was going to happen. 
Well, in the first place, back to my introductory point, it shows us the humanity of Jesus. Jesus was a hundred percent man. He was not 50% man or any kind of other percentage or combination. Jesus is and was just as human as you are. And so it would make sense that being fully human, he would experience the full range of emotions that humans experience. Joy, grief, anger, I imagine laughter, and as we see here, even deep, intense sorrow to where he is bawling. In fact, if you follow this sequence in Luke 19, you are going to see a range of emotions in Jesus. He's riding into Jerusalem on this donkey, I imagine, as the Disciples are shouting Hosanna as they're putting down their cloaks and waving the palm branches. I imagine that gave Jesus some sense of joy. They are worshiping God. They are celebrating the King. And I imagine, I don't have a verse that says this, but I don't think He was emotionless. I don't think He was upset at that point. I think Jesus was probably rejoicing along with His disciples. And then if you look at the passage following our text, Jesus goes into the temple and he makes a whip and he clears it out of there and it is this demonstration of righteous indignation. And so he goes from joy to grief in Luke, our passage, and then into anger. I mean, that sounds like you last Thursday, doesn't it? So I think the first reason that Scripture records for us that Jesus wept is so that we remember that Jesus was human just like you and me. Luke shows us that he records that Jesus was weeping not just because it happened, but because God wants you to know of His true humanity. Jesus was really a man. But check this out. Jesus weeping over Jerusalem is not just an expression of His humanity, but as the God-man, it is an expression of His divinity. Now, I've had all week to think about this. I'm giving you no time at all to think about this, but here's what I've been meditating on all week. When I see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem like this, I think of the God of Israel. Do we not find a range of emotions used to describe Israel's God in the Old Testament? Anger, compassion, grief, love, hate, jealousy, and even joy are descriptive of the God of the Old Testament. Let me just give you a few. Genesis 6.6. These are the days of Noah. It says the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth and it grieved Him to His heart. Deep grief. 
Exodus 20, verse 5. As he's giving the law, he says, You shall not bow down to idols or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Isaiah 62, 5, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Or I'll just give you one more. Psalm 135.14 For the Lord will vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants. And surely you can think of all kinds of verses that demonstrate God's wrath and His anger. Now, do we believe that God has full knowledge of all future events? Of course. He declares the end from the beginning. He even ordains all that comes to pass. And so if we can believe God is described in this way, and that His interaction with humanity is explained with descriptions of emotion, it should not be hard for us to believe that when He comes down in the person of His Son as a man, he is one who expresses emotion. Now, I'm going to pause here for a second. Some of you are really theologically astute. You've been studying Scripture for a long time. You didn't go to seminary, but you practically, I mean, you talk like you did. You know theology. And you're sitting thinking, but God doesn't really have these emotions. This is what Scripture writers use and apply to God to help us understand Him. In other words, attributing human emotion to God is what gives us a sense of what God is like. Okay? I don't disagree with you. I think that's true. God is a spirit. He is not a human. And when it says that God regrets that He made man, we are not to think, oh no, God didn't know this was going to happen. Like when you blow it and you regret that you did something stupid. God's not like that. But what the writer is doing is giving us a sense so we have some kind of understanding. I know what that feels like. Like God is so opposed to what man is doing on the earth that the writer says, I'm going to communicate this using human language so that you know what God is, quote, feeling. Again, that's human ideas put upon God. So, we see emotions attributed to God in the Old Testament who is spirit and who is not human. And there is a theological term for that. It's called anthropopathism. An anthro, anthropos is man and pathos is emotion. And so you put that together, you have um, human emotion. It is the ascribing of human feelings to something that is not feeling or not human. That is what the word means. Ascribing human feelings to something not human. 
You do this with your animals, I bet, all the time. Oh, look at little Poochie. He's so sad. Like, he's just hungry. He just wants you to give him something to eat. So, uh, elaborating on this, in biblical discourse, God is depicted as a human being by referring either to his appearance, that's an anthropomorphism, or feelings, attitudes, and ways of interaction with people, anthropopathism. So, Old Testament, uh, it talks about there are pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. Does God have a hand? No, he is a spirit. He is not human. That is an anthropomorphism. An anthropopathism would be something like God regrets that he made man. So I will agree that the Old Testament does this, but here's my point in all of that. No one can make that claim when it comes to the person of Jesus. No one can say, oh, but this is just a way to help us understand. God's not really affected that way. He is affected that way in the person of Jesus because Jesus, the God-man, is showing full expression of emotion. So these are true and real emotions that come from the divine and the human, the God-man. God the Son entered humanity and took on our likeness. God and man in one person so that all of those Old Testament expressions of emotion that were attributed to God so that we might understand Him now become a reality in the person of Jesus. And it's recorded for us so that we might know something about God. Isn't that why we study the Bible? To know our Creator and to know His heart? So what does God want you to know from this picture of Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem? What does God want you to know from that? How about that He cares? Is that a fair deduction? He cares. I mean, at the very least, we can learn from that passage that God is a God who cares. He is not unaffected by human rebellion. Or, He is not unaffected by the love of His people. So, with God coming in the person of Jesus, God, man, together, we discover that God is not so wholly other than us that He is unrelatable to you. God is not in some other galaxy far, far away, and He just created this world and He has gone off onto more important things but that the purpose of the incarnation was in some way to demonstrate that God is with us in the most profound way and that He is very much connected to what's going on here. He interacts with us And he has experienced what we experienced on a human level. 
So when you see God in the Old Testament express regret, or when you see Him have joy, or when you see He's full of wrath, or when you see He's compassionate toward His children, we could be theologically precise and say those emotions are attributed to God by the authors so that we might get an understanding of what God is like, but since He is spirit and not human, it's not really real. But once He comes to us in the person of Jesus, those emotions are now expressed through God the man, and we discover that they are true and genuine expressions and not just ways to describe the attitude that God has, God who is spirit. So, we look at Jesus and we can see what God is truly like. What's God truly like? Even though He knew the Jews would reject Him, even though that was the plan that was ordained by God, He still weeps at their rejection. He still weeps. This means that God is not unconcerned about what happens here on earth. This means that God is not disconnected or unaffected by what's going on in your life. I think there is a wonderful personal application here. God is not disconnected or unaffected by what's going on in your life. Whether it's your love for Him or your resistance to Him. This is the God who has been revealed. This is what He's like. And so, these details, this detail in verse 41 is not for us to just gloss over or to have a misinterpretation and say, Jesus didn't know. He had no idea this was going to happen. No, the, the, the mystery here, the, the wonder of this whole thing is He knew all of this was going to happen. This was the divine plan. He's truly brokenhearted over their rejection. Now, does he know what is to come? Yes. Did he know beforehand that the Jews would reject him? Yes. Does it make it any easier for him to experience these events in real time through his humanity? No. God is experiencing these things as a man And what it does to him in the person of Jesus is break his heart, which is a reflection of the divine. I mean, that's God the Father's heart as well. Now, I was trying to think of a way we could grasp this a little bit better. And the best thing I could come up with was, imagine you have a child whom you love deeply. I mean, this little girl is your life. You love her with all of your heart. And she has leukemia, and it is not good. And so the doctors, there's no hope. No chemo is going to cure this. Your daughter has somewhere between two weeks, best case scenario, three months. Nothing's going to change that. And so every moment you spend with your child, you know what's going to happen. 
you're given a glimpse into the future. But when the child passes, will there not be a tremendous weight of grief at such an event, even though you knew every day that this was coming? I mean, does your foreknowledge remove any kind of emotional response that you will have at this child's death? Of course not. You are now experiencing the death in reality, and even though you knew and thought about it over and over and over and over, when it finally does come, the flood of emotions just comes over you. And so, Jesus knows of Israel's rejection, but as he experiences it on our level as a man, he weeps. The weight of his grief just cascades over him, and it is audible, and it is sobbing, and it is very real. Now, we will see more about this next time, but just to sort of summarize, God is all-powerful, He's all-knowing, and He's ever-present, and we wrap that up in a term we say He is almighty. This is the God of the Bible. And yet the Scripture also shows us that God is not indifferent to what we do, He's not disinterested or disengaged. He loves His church and we can in some way give Him joy or we could even grieve Him. That's how, that's how God has chosen to experience this relationship with you. And we see this clearly in the life of Jesus. This is not theological nitpicking. This has profound importance on how you perceive God and how you relate to God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, these things are greater than we can comprehend. Oh, we can grasp at it, Lord, like the hem of Your garment. But the fullness of that picture is so complex. The spiritual world is so hard for us to comprehend that we are just left with some sense of mystery in all of it. And yet You have shown us enough that what is been revealed to us is clear that you love us, that you are engaged in our existence here on earth, and that you took on humanity so that you might relate to us now and forever. And that ought to be in the hearts of your people a reason for worship. And so, our Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for this picture that you've given us in Luke's Gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.